one of the one of the things I like about Manchester is that when uh, when I am here, people do come up to me and they say, uh, you know, I'm Bill or I'm Tracy, and you know, uh, I believe you are our president and. They introduce themselves. In, in Cambridge, people are a bit more reserved, aren't they? And uh, they kind of nod at you, but they don't come up. So I, I really love that about the Manchester Sangha. So do take, um, take what Arthur Rodden says literally and uh, do come and say hello uh, to me. I'd, I'd really love that. Maybe I should say something. He didn't say uh, anything about what a president is. Just let me say a word about that. The pre- president sounds really important, doesn't it? And uh, I came in on the bus, though. Um, so a president is, uh, in a way, a friend, uh, a friend of the centre from outside the centre who uh, takes an interest in the centre. Um, it's a sounding, uh, can be a bit of a sounding board for ideas about uh, the centre. And uh, I've got a very long-standing connection with the Manchester Centre. I love... Uh, this centre. I've spent a lot of time in this kind of room. I didn't plaster, I don't think I plastered the ceiling in this room, but I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in this room over the years, and I, I really love coming back here uh, to Manchester. So do come up to me and, and uh, tell me who you are, and I, I'd be really interested to know and uh, know your story, how you, how you came to come to the centre here. Um, I've got a little bit of a tickle in my throat, so I've got a rather large boiled sweet in my mouth. And uh, uh, so I hope this won't be too garbled. <laughs> I was supposed to come uh, to Manchester, I think in October, wasn't I, last, last year? And uh, a surprise to me, they found that I'd got a heart complaint. So I had, a, I had uh, open heart surgery last uh, September and I've been recovering from that the last few months. I just wanted to, to mention that because I wanted to I wanted to kind of, uh, in a way uh, say how much I valued the NHS and uh, the nursing I got, the care I got was fantastic it was really, really fantastic the food was terrible <laughs> uh, I mean really, it was really terrible but the, the care was fantastic the NHS is something I'm really really proud of um, the title of my talk is called uh, Risking It All, and it's inspired by a short aphorism of Bante's called, um, that goes, this, goes like this. The conscious growth of a truly human being is, is the ultimate heroic act left to us. The conscious growth of a truly human being is the ultimate heroic act left to us. Last year in Cambridge, I gave a series of talks on the Sangha. Um, this meant, of course, thinking quite a lot about the Sangha. It was often in my mind, it was often in my meditations, it was often in my kind of reflections. I talked to people about what the Sangha <coughs> meant to them. Um, I talked to them about the, uh, the Buddha and the, uh, the Dharma too. And I was looking, when I was giving that series of four talks, I was looking for something that kind of embodied the spirit of the Sangha. Something that embodied the heroic attitude of the Sangha. And as sometimes happens, I found it after I'd given the four talks. 
but I, I wanted to use the opportunity of this presidential uh, visit, this talk tonight, to uh, tell you what that is. I did find it, and uh, to explore it a little bit, to unpack it a little bit. It's a saying of um, Bhante Sangharakshita, and uh, for me, it embodies the Bodhisattva spirit. Um, Artavadan says the talk is about the Sangha, and the Sangha, the, 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 the spirit of the Sangha, the spirit of the Sangha is the Bodhisattva spirit. So this is the uh, this is the uh, the phrase, and I'll, I'll say it a couple of times. I will place no limit on what I will do when the time is ripe, and I am ready for other living beings. I will place no limit on what I will do when the time is ripe, and I am ready for other living beings. So it's quite short, isn't it? It's quite short. It's quite kind of uh, pithy. Um, it's one of my. It's become a favourite. Uh, it's become a favourite of mine. For me, the Bodhisattva embodies the spirit of the Sangha. The Bodhisattva commits themselves to enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. For the Bodhisattva, the goal is not separated from the concern for other living beings. Uh, in fact, without this concern. They're not a bodhisattva. So one way for me of, of understanding what a bodhisattva is is to uh, see the sangha, to see the sangha as a bodhisattva, uh, to see the Manchester uh, sangha as as embodying, uh, working as a bodhisattva right in the middle of the city. Uh, this is where the bodhisattvas kind of work. They 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 they. Uh, they don't kind of uh, stay above the clouds. They work within the grit of the uh, of the city of Sangsara. I think sometimes we can get carried away um, with the Bodhisattva ideal. We can lose connection with where we really are and our real concern for other people. So I found Bhante's aphorism really useful in that. It keeps true to that great selfless aspiration but it stays in the real. Um, sometimes people get carried away with uh, talking about the bodhisattvas, but they don't see the people around them. Uh, they don't kind of show kindness to real people around them. They are very concerned with helping all beings, but all beings actually starts with this being and that being right around you. So I want to explore this, and it's work in progress for me, because every time I, I sit... Uh, I was I was travelling here on the train on Friday and it took five hours to get to Manchester and uh, I was thinking about this quite a lot, this particular aphorism. It starts with, I will place no limit. Um, right at the beginning of our Dharma life and uh, uh, right at the beginning, uh, you can be practising the Dharma for 30 years. I've been, I've been involved with the Dharma for 30 years. I feel I'm still right at the beginning of my Dharma life. Um, we have no idea what we're doing. You've got involved with the Dharma, you have no idea what you got involved with. No idea. And uh, that's both challenging, isn't it? And uh, fantastic. Um, we need to take, we need to remain open. We need to be open, receptive. We need to take personal responsibility for ourselves. 
We're saying individually, when we say this, I will place no limit, that we won't start our spiritual life, we won't start our, our Dharma life by placing limits on what we are prepared to do. We won't have an attitude of so far and no further. But of course this is exactly what we do do, isn't it? It's what I do. And um, uh, when I'm asked to do something, somebody rings up, Gorachita in the back there rings up and says, will you give a talk? Here, <laughs> in my guts, I want to... I want to look at my diary and find that there's already something there. Uh, you know, so the, the, the first response sometimes is a kind of, no, I limit myself. When sometimes somebody asks to see me, I don't want to meet them. And uh, so I limit myself in so many different ways. I'm going to be talking about this as I, as I uh, go through the talk. Um, so this is exactly what we do. And we'll do it's a sort of get out or safety clause, isn't it? Emotionally, we are saying I will place, I will place a limit on for, on how far I am prepared to change, a limit to how far I will go. I'm afraid that life, reality, doesn't recognise those get out clauses. In the end, everything is taken from you, taken from us. And the more we have left at the end of our life, the poorer we will be. We need to use our resources, our personal resources. Um, to place limits on what we will do is artificial. It's an attempt to have some control over our future. Um, that's what we want, isn't it? That's what I want. I want some control over my future. I want to know where I'm going. Um, it's understandable. I can sympathise. I, I do it myself. Uh, but in fact, it's not uh, possible to do. So who hasn't done this at some time? Um, it doesn't work though. It has the opposite effect, I think. You can't determine your future. Our willed actions do have an effect. Skillful action will have a positive effect. Unskillful action uh, limits, limits us leads to limitation, to a narrower life, a, li a more limited perspective. Now, when you start out on your Dharma life, uh, it can seem as if you are limiting yourself. So the phrase begins with, I will place no limit, but it can seem as if you are limiting yourself. You limit certain behaviours. You try and be more kind of ethical and so forth. Um, but in a way, uh, what you're doing is you're not limiting yourself, you are freeing yourself from the limitations of well, selfishness, of uh, egoistic kind of will. Shantideva, the great 8th century poet and teacher, says that all the unhappiness in the world comes from wanting oneself alone to be happy. And all the happiness in the world comes from wanting others to be happy. So I think it's a grand thing to say, I will place no limit. Uh, that is me. Uh, I will place no limit. Don't worry about the metaphysics here. We're making a, a declaration to ourselves and to the universe. And the universe has a funny way of kind of responding. It's as if life takes us and our, our word. The limits are off. Um, which might be, uh, you know, in a way, seem quite frightening. But remember, 
there are no real limits anyway. I suppose death, death can seem uh, a rather limiting factor, uh, but we don't know. We really don't know. I had an encounter with death uh, quite recently. I had, uh, I had this surgery, as I mentioned, this open heart surgery, and the consultant told me, and they have to tell you this kind of thing now, don't they? they told, he told me that um, it was fairly kind of routine these days to have this kind of operation, but um, uh, 10%, 10% of people who have the operation don't survive. Yeah? So there's a little gulp. But then I thought, actually, 90% do. 90% of people uh, survive. Uh, that seemed quite good. I went with a friend and we discussed the odds. That seemed quite good. But then when we brought it down to out of 10 patients, one patient would die, uh, that didn't seem so good again. Um, <laughs> it didn't seem like quite such good odds. Anyway, on further reflection, death didn't seem a limitation um, and I did think about death quite a lot then. I thought about my life and uh, was I leading the kind of life I wanted? And what a relief it was to actually think, yes, I am leading the kind of life I want. My life is meaningful. And that if I die now, um, it will be all right. I really got to that kind of position. I don't know... Um, whether, had it gone a bit further, I would have maintained that position. But as I was kind of being wheeled down, <laughs> wheeled down to the theatre, I, uh, I was okay. Uh, I, I'd kind of, I was quite philosophical. It was a bit of a shock when I woke up the next day after the <laughs> operation. Um, but I think, I, I think, as I say, it didn't seem kind of a limitation. During that, during that time, I looked around at my friends, I looked around at my life with kind of new eyes. It happens, doesn't it? Sometimes if you're moving away from somewhere, if you're going to move to a, a new town or a new country, you look around at the familiar things that you took so much for granted and you see them with kind of fresh eyes. And I was doing that with my community. I was doing that with my friends in Cambridge. I was looking around and uh, I loved them. You know, and uh, why hadn't I said that more? Um sitting on the chair in my room, gazing out at the garden. Uh, I just loved the, the, the trees and the birds and uh, um, the, the perspective of death made me really value my life more. It opened up my life. Um, so yes, life and people seem more precious than, than they had ever seemed before. The little things of life seemed fuller, more satisfying, even more magical and significant. Um, getting a, deep, a deeper sense of the inevitability of my death, the end of my life, had the effect of removing, at least to some extent, the limitations that fear and habit had put on my life. It hasn't lasted. That, uh, that kind of perspective, that, uh, that clarity hasn't lasted. Uh, it doesn't, does it? The habits kind of pour back in. But I, I kind of remember that. I remember that kind of, kind of quite clearly. It's made a difference to my life. So that when we know, when we know we're really going to die, when we kind of accept that, we're no longer flying from it. We're no longer ignoring it or denying it. And we look at others differently. There's an old cliche, isn't there, that uh, you can't take it with you. 
This is what my dad says to me sometimes. You can't take it with you. And usually people mean material objects or money. Well, when you really know you can't take it with you, uh, those things lose their grip on you, I think. Loosen their grip on you. And you loosen your grip on them. I think more and more of Dukkha, the first noble truth, uh, often translated as unsatisfactoriness, as being limitation, where we limit our lives. Um, life is a mysterious web of conditions, the Buddha said. The limitations we place on life, on ourselves, are not there. Those limitations do not exist. We place the limitations of self on this on this vast network that is reality. We try and circumscribe, wall off some of those conditions and those processes and, and say, that is me. And it's little, it's like part of the, part of the ocean um, identifying part of itself as, as, as me, as against the whole of the ocean. It's a fiction. There is no limitation. Later Buddhism talks about this lack of limitation in terms of shunyata, the open dimension of being. Nothing is closed and sealed off. All is conditioned and conditioning in its turn. And the symbol for shunyata in Buddhism is the vast open sky, limitless and free. And it's out of this blue sky, this vastness, that arises the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. Later, Buddhist tradition talks about the Tathagatagarbha, the womb uh, of the Tathagata, the, of the Buddha. And this teaching tries to communicate that all beings have the potential for enlightenment. One tradition says that we have this potentiality because the Tathagatagarbha within us is actually shunyata, is actually openness, emptiness. We can become Buddhas because we're not fixed, uh, we're not permanent, we're open, we're limitless. Instead of an eternal and unchanging soul within us, we too are shunyata, we too are like that vast, open blue sky. Only ignorance blinds us to this. So to return to Bhante's aphorism, I will place no limit. We can do this because there are no limits. I will place no limit on what I will do. We're saying from our heart that we will do what is needed, whatever that is, that in principle it doesn't matter what that is, we will do it. Now, the, the phrase is, I will place no limit. Sometimes limits are placed on you. It might be kind of health, for example, it might be age. This, this is talking about something different in a way. This is talking about an attitude. This is talking about a, a limitation we place with our mind on our experience, on ourselves. Our tendency to limit ourselves creeps back. Uh, just as I was talking about that experience when uh, I was thinking about death and the openness that came from that. It creeps back. The limits creep back. We, we need to be working on that all the time. So let us ask ourselves, um, has this happened? So if you're new, if you're new to the Dharma, um, I'll let you decide what new is. 
do you limit yourself? Um, do you think, well, maybe I can, I can become a little bit more aware, but uh, selfless, compassionate, wise? Mm, maybe others, maybe not me. If you've been practicing the Dharma for some time, if you're maybe an order member, you know, where are your limitations? Uh, where have they kind of crept back in? Um, it's really, really valuable to see this. Um, again, I'll be, I'll be kind of talking about this again in a, in a moment. Now, we recognize that uh, our aspiration uh, to place no limits is supported by conditions. We cannot do it without help. And one of the crucial conditions, so crucial, the Buddha himself identified it with the Dharma life, is Kalyanamitata, is spiritual friendship. It's so important that it is one of the three treasures, one of the three jewels of Buddhism. Spiritual friendship is the Sangha jewel, isn't it? So the second part of the aphorism is, when the time is ripe and I am ready. So we've said we will place no limit on what we will do, but we need to be real. Um, the time may not be ripe, or it might be ripe, and we're not yet ready. So how will we know? How will you know whether you are ready to move into this new space, whatever that is? Well, one way is by making mistakes. And it's not, <laughs> it's not that you uh, deliberately set out to make a mistake. Uh, you deliberately set out to uh, do your best, in a way. And through doing that, uh, sometimes you'll make mistakes. Um, I, remember, I remember when we bought this uh, dilapidated uh, old warehouse, uh, it wasn't like this, believe me. I don't know whether... There are some pictures downstairs, aren't there? And um, um, actually, I'm going to say more about that later. So I'll just, I'll just hold that uh, for now. It did seem, though, I'll just say it did seem sometimes at four in the morning that I had made a great mistake. Um, we, think, we think we're ready and we take on some ambitious project or undertaking and we hit the wall. We make a mess of it. We were not up to it. Some will say, some of our friends will say, some of our enemies will say, uh, we were naive. And perhaps they're right. Although I think naivety is underrated. <laughs> I think you need uh, an element of uh, naivety in any great project uh, you're going to do. If you know the result before you do it, um, you're not really going beyond your limitation. It's already the known. And Banti says somewhere, doesn't he, that you can't commit yourself uh, to the known. You always commit yourself to the unknown. Um, so uh, you need to go into it not kind of, uh, not kind of knowing. You cannot know when you take something new on what will happen. Not absolutely. If I had known how some projects I've taken on would have been before I took them on, I probably wouldn't have taken them on. Um, if I'd known how hard the building of this Buddhist centre uh, would be, uh, would I have done it? I've thought about that sometimes. Would I have done it? Uh, we'd, still, we'd all be in Chalton, uh, um, which uh, might have been very convenient for some of you living <laughs> on that side of the city. I don't know, I just, uh, perhaps not. 
perhaps I wouldn't have taken that on. I mean, we did it as a team. I wasn't single-handedly. I didn't <laughs> didn't uh, refurbish this building. But would we have taken it on? Um, I think I, I think I would actually. I think I would still have done it. Um, so making mistakes is one way of finding out if the time is ripe and we are ready. And you cannot really make much progress without making mistakes. In fact, making mistakes can be a really good way to make progress if we learn from them. Um, I remember, I might have told this story before, but I remember being in Kalimpong. I was at the ITBCI school, Dr. Rinpoche school, and the, the kids there are learning English, so they learn phrases. And there was this phrase written on the blackboard, and it said in English, um, to make a mistake is not a mistake. To repeat a mistake is a mistake. Uh, and I thought, I thought that was, uh, there's a lot of kind of common sense in that. <clears throat> so they're a good way of learning. If we, if, uh, mistakes are, if we learn from them. Sometimes the greater humiliation, uh, the greater learning. One area where it is easy to make mistakes is relations with other people. Isn't that true? Um, we're, we so regularly think we know them and yet it's so hard to understand our own self never mind other people so I don't know whether you've read any um, Philip Roth if you read American uh, Pastoral this might be familiar uh, to you I'm, gonna, I'm going to read a quote from it which expresses in a way uh, really well maybe our attitude to other people He says, you fight, your you fight your superficiality, your shallowness, so as to try to come at people without unreal expectations, without an overload of bias or hope or arrogance, as untank-like as you can be. No cannon and machine guns and steel plating half a foot thick you come at them unmenacingly on your own ten toes instead of tearing up the turf with your caterpillar treads. Take them on with an open mind, as equals, man to man, as we used to say, and yet you never fail to get them wrong. You might as well have the brain of a tank. You get them wrong before you meet them. While you're anticipating meeting them, you get them wrong while you're with them and then you go home to tell somebody else about the meeting and you get them all wrong again. Since the same generally goes for them with you, the whole thing is really a dazzling illusion. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's getting them wrong that is living. Getting them wrong and wrong and wrong and then on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. <laughs> That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. Maybe the best thing would be to forget being right or wrong about people and just go along for the ride. But if you can do that, well, lucky you. So that's uh, Philip Roth's take on communication. Um, I don't know whether <laughs> you think that's rather cynical, or you think that, no, that's... That's true. Um, I love that quote. Getting them wrong and wrong and then after careful 
reconsideration, getting them wrong again. Communication, communication is a miracle. Um, I love those lines from Samuel Beckett as well. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. When we set out to do something we haven't done before, we risk failure. But what is failure? It's surely not making mistakes. To learn, we need to make mistakes. Now, failure, I think, is where we prematurely give up. We lose faith in ourselves. We are imperfect, flawed beings. Perfect people don't need to seek the way or go on a quest. But the important thing is not that we are imperfect or that we have doubts or that we might be confused at least sometimes the important thing is to take a small step forward and then another small step forward and then another another important way of knowing if the time is ripe and we are ready is by communication with our spiritual friends bearing in mind (laughs) the mistakes the misunderstandings that can happen there's an example from the time of the Buddha where the young disciple Magia, you might know the story, wanted to go off to a mango grove to meditate that he discovered while out, whilst out on his begging round. Um, these were the perfect conditions, Magia thought, and the only thing standing in the way of the perfect conditions was the Buddha. Um, so he pays lip service to talking to his spiritual friends by asking the Buddha if he can go but he's not he's not really asking uh, he's telling the Buddha so in brief he gets his way and then he gets uh, he gets off to the perfect conditions to the mango grove and he's overcome isn't he he's overcome by hateful violent malicious <coughs> lustful thoughts and he cannot meditate he returns to the Buddha and the Buddha tells him that when the heart release is immature, certain conditions are needed. Indeed, they are essential. And this is what the Buddha says to Magia. So the heart's release being immature is when the time is not ripe and we are not ready. Magia, when you are spiritually immature, there are five things that conduce to spiritual maturity. And the first of these is spiritual friendship. The second thing is the practice of ethics. And the third is serious discussion of the Dharma. Fourthly, you need to direct energy into eliminating negative mental states and developing positive ones. And fifthly, you must cultivate insight in the sense of a deep understanding of universal impermanence. In what is a Sangha, Bhante fills out this a bit more. He writes... The Buddha marked out these five things as necessary for the spiritually undeveloped. And of course he was implying Magia should put spiritual spiritual friendship first. (coughs) Like Magia, we are often unaware of the extent to which we are dependent spiritually on having personal contact with our spiritual friends, particularly those who are more developed than we are. It is very difficult to make any spiritual progress without them. We may not have the Buddha, but we do have one another. We can help one another. We can encourage one another in our practice of the Dharma. 
We can confess our faults and weaknesses to one another. We can share our understandings with one another. We can rejoice in one another's merits. In these ways, we can make a practice of spiritual friendship. No one else can practice the Dharma for us. We have to practice it ourselves, but we don't need to practice it by ourselves. We can practice it in the company of other like-minded people who are trying to do the same. And this is the best way, in fact, the only effective way to practice. And when we do this, something magical, I think, can happen. The Buddha famously said to Ananda, Ananda thinking that uh, spiritual friendship was so important that it, it constituted half the spiritual life. It was so important. And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, it's the whole of the spiritual life. What does this mean? We hear about this so much, you know, in... Uh, at the Buddhist Centre sometimes, don't we? Or when we're reading, uh, uh, reading the Dharma. What does this mean? Does it just mean coming along to the Buddhist Centre and being friendly? Uh, well, that's, that's a beginning, but it means much more than that. The Buddha is trying, I think, to say that if you really understand spiritual friendship, if you really have spiritual friendship in its heights and depths, then somehow you have it all. If you can be a real spiritual friend then you are really living the Dharma life. Not so much practicing it, but living it. Bhante goes on uh, to write about this. He says, The intimate connection between spiritual friendship and spiritual life starts to come into focus. Spiritual friendship is a training in unselfishness, in egolessness. You share everything with your friend or friends, you speak to them kindly and affectionately and show concern for their welfare, especially their spiritual welfare. But I just wanted to underline, and their practical welfare too. You treat them in the same way you treat yourself. That is, you treat them as being equal with yourself. You relate to them with an attitude of metta, not according to where the power between you lies. Of course, this is very difficult. It goes against the grain because we are naturally selfish. The development of spiritual friendship is very difficult. Leading the spiritual life is very difficult. Being a Buddhist, a real Buddhist, is very difficult. We need help. And we can get that help not only from our teachers, but also from one another. And I, think this is, I think this is so true. Uh, I remember coming to my first... Uh, Buddhism class at the Bristol wasn't even the Bristol Buddhist Centre it was a Catholic chaplaincy and uh, the order member giving the class I didn't take I didn't take to him at all you know and uh, it was one of the team one of the uh, friends or the mitchers on the team that kind of pulled me aboard went out to me remembered my name the next week you know that had quite an effect on me that uh, I wasn't just a punter Sometimes we call people that, don't we? I was uh, a person, you know, with a name. And uh, I think it's really worth remembering that, you know, if you're, if you're dropping classes or you're supporting classes, that the person there, uh, what had they overcome to come there? Sometimes people tell me in Cambridge that they have meant to come to the centre many times 
Uh, somebody told me even they got to the door. It took them, it took them months to get to the door. They got to the door and they could go no further. Uh, like fear. Uh, and this is quite a competent person, but a sort of fear drove them back. Uh, and it was a long time before they managed to get through the door. So there, there are people, you know, they're coming in the first night of a, uh, a Buddhism course. We don't know what stories they're coming from. Um, you going out to them, you're just saying, you know, hello to them, making them feel kind of welcome, can have a, a really powerful effect, I think. So a root condition is of spiritual friendship is communication. The heart's release <coughs> is immature. I've said this already, haven't I? Is another way of saying that the time is is not ripe and we are not ready. So your more experienced spiritual friends are important. You can learn from them. You can learn from their mistakes too. So I think we should be talking, <laughs> if we're more experienced, we should be talking about our mistakes as well as our triumphs with people. Sometimes I've learnt more from uh, a spiritual friend, a more experienced spiritual friend, talking about the mistakes that they've made rather than the, the, the triumphs that they've uh, kind of accomplished. Um, your peer friends, I think your peer friends are very, very important too. Uh, for me, they were kind of uh, uh, crucial. I couldn't have done it without this support. And my friends in the Sangha have been a great boon to me all my, all my Dharma life, I think. Uh, their example, with its struggles and successes and failures, has helped me more than I can say. It's helped me to persevere. So the Sangha is made up of people of all sorts of levels of experience. The Sangha embodies the stories of struggles and triumphs. It carries a kind of a deeper wisdom. And... Um, uh, I, I kind of notice this sometimes at courses at Buddhist centres. There, there is a Dharma uh, discourse, there is a Dharma talk like I'm giving you tonight. And then sometimes uh, there's another kind of Dharma discourse that goes on in the tea break, although we're not having a tea break, are we? <laughs> uh, but uh, in those kind of, uh, those moments of kind of a break, those uh, moments where it feels like... Um, uh, they sort of uh, they don't feel like dharmic moments, but they might be. Some something is uh, something may be kind of communicated of significance. I've got a friend uh, who lives at uh, Padmaloka Retreat Centre who says that you need to come out of your comfort zone several times a day to stay flexible and open. This is Surata, um, and the comfort zone is the zone of habit. It's a zone of well-worn routine, the predictable, the known. And if we don't move out of our comfort zone on a regular basis, um, that comfort zone shrinks. It doesn't stay the same. It gets smaller and more constricted. We need uh, a certain amount of healthy stress in our lives to keep alive and alert. That might seem quite odd saying that at a Buddhist center because sometimes people come here because they're stressed. <laughs> And they need uh, they need to kind of relax. They need to de-stress. Well, you can certainly uh, you can certainly have too much stress in your life. We all know that. But you need uh, you need also a healthy kind of calling out of your energies. Um, 
I think uh, without that kind of challenge, uh, our, our superb human resourcefulness becomes blunted. We've evolved as human beings out of those challenges. Why is it that we feel so comfortable in our routines and habits? What are the benefits of breaking out of our comfort zone? And how do you do it? Modern life is or can be stressful. Our comfort zone is a space where our activities and behaviours follow a routine and pattern that seem to minimise stress and risk. It allows us to feel secure, to have some sense of control. Uh, some psychologists say that a state of relative comfort creates a steady level of performance. But in order to maximise performance, they say, uh, we need a state of relative anxiety, a space where our stress levels are slightly higher than normal. And they call this space optimal anxiety. It's just outside our comfort zone. Too much anxiety and you become stressed out. Um, so this optimal anxiety, I never thought I'd be talking about uh, encouraging <laughs> stress and anxiety at a Buddhist centre, but here I am. <laughs> to call it that might be familiar to you. When you've taken on a challenge that really pushes you, you really engage with, it can turn up amazing results actually. You can accomplish far more than you think you were capable of. And it can encourage a feeling of wanting to carry on. You want to stretch your new muscles further, so to speak. You feel resourceful and creative. We can take on challenges that we're not ready for. And if we do that, we push ourselves way, if we push ourselves way beyond our limits, it has two effects, I think. Firstly, we will probably fail to do whatever it is uh, we are attempting to do. And secondly, it may discourage us from taking on things in the future. It's our natural tendency to return to the comfort zone. And taking on too much encourages us to stay there. Because failure encourages a kind of lack of endeavour. But we are living things. And our nature is also to want to grow. If we are not sure in Bhante's phrase that we are ready or the time is ripe, well, we can ask our friends. We can ask our friends for their opinion. But the attitude of, in principle, putting no limit on what you are prepared to do is one that will encourage you to keep moving beyond the comfort zone and therefore to keep growing. I should add at this point that we also need time to rest, to recuperate, to dream, to reflect, and it's necessary to make the space and time for this too. It can also be the space where we process the benefits we get from our activity. In meditation, for example, we need time where we are active and we also need time when we just sit and we absorb the benefits of our, our activity. There should be that kind of pulse, activity and kind of rest, activity and uh, absorption. Sometimes in meditation, if it's just activity, you're just always active in meditation, you never allow yourself to experience the fruits of your meditation. So learning to leave your comfort zone can make you feel more effective as a person. You will feel, you will be able to feel you have the initiative more. And 
I want to say it isn't. It really isn't just about doing more stuff, um, getting more done. To those of you whose lives already seem too full, it may not be very appealing. What I'm suggesting. I think some of us too are too comfortable in busyness. We can be addicted to activity. Leaving our comfort zone in this case means slowing right down, <coughs> taking more time to think, more time to reflect, to think things through, taking more time to come to decisions. Um, yes, addicted to activity. Um, I think you kind of need to look at your life. Sometimes uh, we have this idea that if only I uh, didn't have all that I have got to do, I would be able to have some time, some space. Uh, but you might be, you might uh, have that uh, experience sometimes where you do clear the decks, and you realise actually, far from your business getting in the way <laughs> of more reflection. Uh, you're attached to your busyness. You get your sense of identity from your busyness, from the things that you do. Um, it's probably good to turn off the iPad sometimes, isn't it? Um, so stopping and reflecting. You need to work out really what for you as an individual is going beyond your comfort zone. Uh, for some people, resting pushes them beyond their comfort zone. They're not at ease with resting. They, they, they want activity. Sometimes, uh, as well as burnout, you can get rust out, where you, uh, you, 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 you don't have very much initiative in your life. Actually, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, something they find with people who are long-term unemployed. Uh, you can get into the habit of being quite kind of passive. So when something does happen that is more challenging, it really throws you. It really throws you because you're not used to the sort of the daily challenges that, that come up. Once you start stepping, I say this so comfortably, <laughs> uh, comfortably, once you start stepping out of your comfort zone, it gets easier over time. It didn't always seem easier. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> this growth in awareness this conscious movement that embraces challenge will become more normal to you you'll see that as you challenge yourself your comfort zone adjusts so what was difficult and anxiety inducing becomes easier as you repeat it I think that is I think that is true I wrote that so I think it is true <laughs> uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, you still don't feel challenged so um, I've led probably thousands of study groups, you know, over the years. And uh, as I've done it, it's got easier. Uh, I kind of know what to expect. Uh, if we're going through a period of storming, it's all right. You know, I know what to expect. And uh, um, But put me sometimes in, a, in a, a different situation. I went on a Karina appeal recently to lead some study for them. And uh, I was surprised how nervous I felt. Uh, doing that. Nervous because I wasn't on the appeal. Uh, these guys were going out, you know, every night, knocking on doors, trying to raise money for Karina. Little plug there. <laughs> it's a fantastic thing to do. Talk about going beyond your comfort zone. It's a fantastic thing to do. And I was coming in to lead study to them. I was going to come in and uh, 
talk to them about what they were doing. When, you know, I wasn't doing it, they were doing it. It seemed, it seemed kind of rather awkward. They were very patient with me. Um, <laughs> something like that, actually, while I'm on the, on this, the, 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 at the topic of uh, Karen appeals, I, uh, I did a Karen appeal uh, a few years ago, and uh, it was the scariest thing I think I'd ever done and, uh, uh, before that. And, uh, but at the, the end of the appeal, I felt like, uh, I don't know, I felt much more kind of grounded and I could take things on. I wanted to kind of take things on. Uh, so if you've got a bit of time, there are men's appeals, there are women's appeals, aren't there, uh, around the country. Fantastic thing to do. And you can do so much good uh, for people uh, in India who are part of our movement. A fantastic thing to do. And a great way of uh, developing new friendships on the appeal, and it's it's good um, it's good sometimes to turn to what kind of uh, frightens us. Sometimes you can confront yourself too strongly, but you know to turn to turn to towards that uh, I think is really important. You can hear endless Dharma talks come to all sorts of retreats and study seminars and these are important it's important to come and hear talks like this that I'm giving tonight <laughs> but you learn best I think when you put it into action when you have to do this because you committed yourself to it I learn best when I simply have to learn I'm a really lazy person um, so I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have thought about Sangha to the extent that I have uh, unless I had to that's a terrible admission, isn't it? But it's, it's kind of true. Ratna, Ratna Gosha, who's the chair of Cambridge, asked me to, to give six talks originally on the Sangha. Six talks on the Sangha. I said, four. <laughs> and, uh, actually, I, said, I think I might have said three, and he said five, and I, we got down to four. And um, it, it made me sit down. The fear of having nothing to say the first night made me sit down and uh, think about Sangha. So if you're lazy like me, uh, you need to commit to something that you will have to do. If you're not lazy like me, you will have committed yourself anyway. Um, we are probably much more resourceful than we think. We are. We are. I've seen this. Uh, um, but that creativity, that resourcefulness may have to be called forth by challenge. When we have to solve a difficulty, we really learn, don't we? Um, puzzling something out is really, really good for us, I think. Working something out. Just going back to this place for a moment, I hope you don't mind me reminiscing like this about the, the Buddhist centre. Um, I don't know whether people do this do they do it enough? Do they do it too much? Too long. <laughs> they talk about the old Buddhist centre. Anyway, I'll say, I'll say a few things. I mean, there were teams of people, Buddhist teams, who worked, did most of the building work uh, in this building. And uh, uh, I saw them for coffees. I've been for walks around uh, Chilton Park with them. But I, uh, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen what they were capable of. Um, this project kind of brought that out, summoned that out of them. And uh, God, there was some storming. It wasn't just performing, there was some kind of storming. And uh, 
Um, yeah, I, I saw kind of qualities come out of people, strengths come out of people that I, I didn't imagine uh, were there. It was it was fantastic. So outside your comfort zone can be a good place to be as long as you don't tip the scales too far. Everyone's comfort zone is different uh, and what may expand your horizons may paralyze someone else. So getting stressed out is not spiritually or psychologically of benefit. I'll say that again in case you think I am suggesting that. Getting stressed out is not spiritually or psychologically of benefit. Um, I'm not talking about getting stressed out. I'm talking about stepping outside uh, our comfort zone. Do it in small steps. It takes courage to break out of your comfort zone. And you get the same benefits whether you go in with both feet as you do if you start slow. So don't be afraid to start slow. And there are lots of different ways to stretch your your personal, personal boundaries. So... Some really good questions to ask yourself, and I asked myself these questions when I was writing this, uh, was uh, when I'm looking at my comfort zone, what am I seeking? Where do I seek comfort? So ask yourself, where do you seek comfort? Uh, There are these little tablet things, aren't there? These kind of iPads and Samsung things. They are so comforting, aren't they? There's loads on there to comfort every, every little vice and... And virtue, and uh, what scares you? You know, what is the thing you'd least like uh, to be asked to do? Um, what do you avoid? What do you avoid? Let me make a little confession. Oh, guy, it's going to be—it's going to be filmed, isn't it? <laughs> 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 um, I noticed this. And I've got Ivan here who works, you know, at uh, Windhorse uh, with me. I don't know whether, whether he's ever done this, but in the warehouse, the warehouse is huge, huge. Uh, and it's full of racking and it's got kind of aisles where the items, you know, uh, the pick items are, are stored. And sometimes if I'm having difficulty with someone, you know, I'm walking up the aisle and I can see them coming. <laughs> I, uh, I go up the other aisle. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it's not I think about it, I kind of just kind of do it. And, uh, so I avoid, I avoid possible uh, confrontation. It's pathetic, isn't it? But that's what happens, you know. And uh, so what do you avoid? Are you expending more energy avoiding this thing than it would take to solve it, than it would take to turn towards it? You know, th- th- you've, got, uh, you've got something you need to talk to somebody about. And uh, you just, you think about it, and you avoid phoning them. Uh, you think about phoning them, but you avoid phoning them, and you avoid meeting them. It's exhausting. Uh, face it. Are you listening on to prayer? Face it. Um, so do you take risks? And what are the risks you've taken in your life so far? When was the last time you took uh, a real risk? And it seems to me there's a world of difference between pursuing excitement. Some people take, you know, get involved in risky sports or or, or things like that. And a real risk and real risk taking. When you take a real risk, you're not after a temporary buzz. um, A break from the tedium of your your life. 
you're, you're stepping into no man's land, the unexplored, uh, the unknown. By pushing into the unknown, you find out about yourself. You find out about life too. It's only really about committing yourself to the unknown that you find out who you are. We're kind of a mystery to ourselves, I think. <clears throat> what would you risk everything for? And what would you risk, and what would risking it all mean to you? Would you be prepared to give your life for something you really believed in? Or someone you really loved? Now talk about going uh, beyond the comfort zone. There's a, there's a guy in my uh, mythical group uh, who uh, gave his kidney up. Uh, to someone and you can do this now the law has been changed so you can give your, your kidney to someone you're, you're not related to and uh, he wanted he was so um, uh, the Dharma had had such an effect on him he felt he could help somebody you know he could help change somebody's life and uh, that's what he did um, it's remarkable um, soon after Soon after getting ordained, uh, I moved to Manchester. For me, that was a risk. That was a, a, a kind of new challenge. I didn't, uh, I didn't have friends here at the time. I remember the first night I arrived in Manchester from, from Bristol, and uh, I'm thinking, why did I come? You know, I feel so lonely. And uh, um, I knew that if I stayed, uh, I would develop friends, and that's what happened to me. I, I uh, developed strong friendship here. But that first night um, was uh, so painful. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it because they didn't know me. They couldn't read me. Um, but that risk-taking, that, that, that change, uh, in the long term, had such an effect on my life, such a transforming effect on my life, coming to Manchester, being involved here with the Sangha. I've just found a bit in the talk where I talk about the Manchester uh, building project that I, I talked about earlier, so I'll, I'll uh, move on a bit. Um, so after, after the project here, I moved to Cambridge and to Windhorse. No, I moved to Padmaloka and then I, I moved to, to Cambridge and Windhorse. Um, and I was suddenly working with people from all over the world. Uh, it was and is a microcosm of the whole movement. I think we had 21 nationalities there at the time. <coughs> some of these people, like Ivan, actually, some of these people had left everything to work at Windhorse. They'd crossed the ocean uh, to come to England, different language, different culture, all these strange, reserved English people, you know, and uh, snow, uh, cold, dark... Uh, one of the young Mexicans who's, who's come across said, it is so cold, it is so cold here. I said, uh, it's going to get colder. Uh, so they've left their families, their friends, their culture, uh, to immerse themselves in the context that is Windhorse, to live and to work within the Sangha. And I love that feeling of internationality, most of the time. Uh, sometimes a clash of uh, you know cultural and cultures and values is infuriating, but most of the time it works really well. Now Windhorse has been going for thirty years, and it's our biggest and most successful team-based 
white livelihood business. We've made millions of pounds, millions of pounds to give away both to projects within the movement and social projects outside the movement. Uh, some of those social projects n- not connected at all with Buddhism. They're to help the communities around our suppliers. Um, over the last few years, we've been struggling. You may have heard about this. The credit crunch in 2008, you remember that? <laughs> that hit us really hard. And some of our competitors went under. I had to close. I, and I really felt for them, actually. When you hear these statistics, you know, on the, uh, on the news, there were people behind these statistics, people and family and children, and uh, it's, it's kind of important to remember that. Um, shop, shopping habits have changed over the last few years. Who doesn't go on to Amazon? You know, who doesn't kind of Google uh, when they're, they're shopping these days? Uh, sometimes, oh, like another confession, sometimes I go into a shop to see something and then I'll buy it cheaper um, online. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Um, and a lot of people are doing <laughs> A lot of people are doing that. And a couple of weeks ago, actually it's more now, isn't it? Three weeks ago, um, we were told, uh, we had a meeting of the managers of the shops and the business. We had a meeting and we were told that uh, the business was going to close. After 30 years, uh, Windhorse was going to close. And it was not a surprise, I don't think, was it? But it it was a shock. And there's been so much sadness around since then. Um... Not so much um, for me uh, about uh, gifts. I, 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 didn't, I didn't always like selling gifts, but about relationships, working relationships. I've worked with my team for years. Uh, we know one another. We've worked, you know, we've struggled with one another. We've, we've, we've had wonderful times together, and that is coming to an end. Um, we want to close the business cleanly and ethically, we want to ensure that our suppliers are paid. We want to ensure that our workers are helped in the next stage of their working lives. It's a very sad thing. And uh, it feels particularly sad, I think, uh, when I see opportunities closing. Uh, the opportunity for those who can come at the moment from abroad, from Mexico, um, for example, and uh, get a complete, a very complete and deep sense of the Sangha deep sense of a dharmic lifestyle. Over the years, hundreds of people have worked and lived with us. Hundreds have been helped to get ordained into the order. Um, And that is kind of finishing. And uh, um, we risked a great deal to do that. And it's one of those things you can think, well, you know, was it worth it? Because it's closing. But it was worth it. It was worth it. At the moment, we feel, I think, quite a lot of sadness about that. In time, uh, I want us to kind of rejoice in what uh, has been accomplished uh, in those years. And uh, appeal and appeal for my heart, you know, for people to think about team-based right livelihood, to think about kind of exploring that. It's so, so important. The central story at the heart of Buddhism is a story of great risk. It's a story of Siddhartha. And for most, for Buddhists, it's the story. Um, Everything that Buddhism now is goes back to that story all those years ago. 
And it's a story of struggle, one man's lonely struggle between everything in his life, his family, his friends, the expectations put on him, the habits and pleasures, the love he had for his home and land, and yet something missing, some sense of unease that disturbed his dreams, that broke into his thoughts, that made the pleasures and routines of his life seem somewhat empty. I don't know whether you've been in this situation yourself. I certainly have before I encountered the Dharma. Um, You want yourself to snap out of it. You tell yourself that this is where you want to be. This is what you want to do. Other people find this life satisfying. Why can't I? Um, Maybe we look for distraction. I certainly do. Um, In fact, distraction comes to search me out. Uh, These days, the internet is so useful in this area. There's always the BBC News to look at, something on iPlayer, Celebrity Cook, whatever it it is. (laughs) Or I look at at something uh, educational, like watching TED Talks, and I look at nonsense too. Um, Sometimes the disease, the dis-ease manifests as a kind of chronic boredom or apathy. For others, it's a kind of frantic restlessness behind all that busyness may be a need to keep yourself busy we can't know really what Siddhartha experienced what he was feeling but I find it hard to believe that even with someone so remarkably determined and intelligent there wasn't angst there wasn't indecision so it's a story of a journey an outer journey and an inner journey You may be thinking, what has this old story uh, about someone long dead got to do with me and my life? But in essence, it's a story of every man and every woman. The outer details are different, aren't they? The great forests have gone and, and most of the wild beasts have been hunted to extinction. We live in an age that the ancients could hardly imagine. We can fly in the sky. We've walked on the moon. We've seen the earth rise. But the essentials of the journey are the same because we human beings are essentially the same. I think it's really important that we remember that Siddhartha was looking for an answer. He was strongly motivated to find an answer. But it was not certain at that point that there was an answer. Because we know uh, Siddhartha gained enlightenment, we can read that back into the story. But when he left home, he didn't know that he was going to find an answer. Lots of people had left home in search of the truth and not found it. When you're thinking of making a great change in your life, and if you're like me, you rehearse the future, don't you? Uh, what will it be like? We want to try the future on, but we can't do it because we're always doing it from our present state of mind. We cannot control events. The best we can ever do is to try and take advantage of the opportunities we have The more aware we are, the better we will see them. So we need a context. And a context that allows us to grow and develop in awareness and responsiveness to others. We need a community based on spiritual friendship that is open to the experience of others, that allows uh, them to participate in its creation. A community that allows other kindred spirits to join us. This is Sangha. A context means that we will be supported in our efforts 
and be able to support others too. But it needs to be a context that allows us to breathe, to grow, and one that encourages that for all. We need to be able to discuss and debate, to question and to experiment, but to do that in connection, staying in relationship with others. This is Sangha. It needs to be a context that encourages deepening, encourages the individual to grow ultimately beyond the limits of separate selfhood and with it the limits of selfishness and self-centeredness to the freedom, the freedom that comes when you step beyond self. This is Sangha. If this happens, a new consciousness is possible. What Bhante has called the third order of consciousness. There is group consciousness. Then there is a self-aware individual consciousness. And then there is a kind of awareness that can emerge when a number of individuals come together to practice the Dharma. It doesn't always happen. Something, that can, be, something can begin to emerge when you have a number of individuals dedicated to a greater meaning. That meaning imbued with clarity and loving-kindness. Something is drawn out of us without any, any loss of self-awareness. A consciousness of something greater than the sum of the parts. Perhaps it is impossible to define, but it is nevertheless tangible. I've experienced it myself at some large order gatherings. Perhaps it's a forerunner of some other way of being and relating. When we leave ego clinging behind, even temporarily, even to some degree, when a number of us does that, something else emerges that motivates us, which is not just egoic will. In the Buddhist tradition, this is perhaps connected with the bodhicitta, the will to enlightenment for the sake of all beings, that will that motivates but is selfless and other-centered. When this is Sangha, then Sangha is the Bodhisattva. Uh, this is when the Sangha becomes Avalokiteshvara. So we start, I'm just going to finish with this, so we start with an aspiration. And aspirations have power. They really have power. They echo out into the universe. And there is a response somewhere, somehow, our aspirations made for the benefit of others especially awaken something within us, especially when they're for the benefit of others. We make our aspiration with as much of us as we can. We aspire that I will place no limit on what I will do when the time is ripe and I am ready for other living beings. I will place no limit on what I will do when the time is ripe and I am ready for other living beings.